Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Al Basti Ecruel, Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. First up, and he is a man on a very tight schedule today, is David Sykes from the BHA, the Director of Equine Health and Welfare. David, this is a fast-moving, fast-evolving story. Where are we right now at this point, 9 o'clock Sunday morning? So 9 o'clock Sunday morning, I could happily report that we've not had any other positive tests for, except for the uh, horses in the Don McCain stable. So presently, all tests have returned negative um, up until when I was uh, in contact with the laboratory last night at 9.30. And you are expecting, whilst we're doing this interview, a text from the Animal Health Trust just to give you the updated number. The Racing Post this morning, the number is 7.20. You can add to that now, can't you? I'll be able to add to that. I can probably tell you that the Animal Health Trust in the last three days has done as many uh, flu swabs as they would do in a year. So mm -hmm. they've been working you know, eight till nine at night. They're working Saturday and Sunday to process and all these samples that we're sending in there. They've done a great job. Why are we still in lockdown? And were we right to be in lockdown in the first instance? Okay, why are we still in lockdown? We're still in lockdown until we can gather some more information. So again, you know, it's very nice to have 1,500 samples that are negative. Certainly a lot better if we've got some more of that. We've got a very good indication of what is out there in the general population. It also lets us track back to any of those horses that may have had exposure at Air or Ludlow or Wolverhampton meetings. And if we can demonstrate that those stables and those in-contact horses are negative at that present time, we can gather quite a bit of information and then make some decisions going forward for that, whether at Sunday or Monday, about continuing racing or reopening racing. Now, initially, when you cancelled racing on Thursday, there was widespread support for the speed and decisiveness of your action. Subsequent to that, there's been a groundswell of opinion building up, particularly amongst some powerful trainers with big strings, saying, and I quote, this is a gross overreaction. What's your Okay, so that? the thing, Nick, in, in, in any infectious disease process is, you know, the hard decision's the very first one, because if you think you're going to go soft and say, oh, well, let's just see how this goes, you cannot gather back if you've made a mistake. So realistically, if you draw a line and say, this is the decision we need to make as an industry, let's make this hard decision now, let's be confident about then gathering information from that point forward, and we can then revisit that quite happily in a few days' time, which is what we're doing. Whereas if you make a decision, say, okay, it's fine, and then suddenly we realise we've had runners go to 15 other meetings, we have then started to track up, we've got positive cases here and here and here. Very, very difficult to say, how we're going to control that. So right at the moment I can say to you, we're controlling an infectious disease in once racing stable and we haven't been able to demonstrate it anywhere else. The veterinary community seems to be significantly divided on this. This is a, a citation from one senior vet in Newmarket, not, I should add, the vet who's been 
on Twitter recently. Uh, the BHA have totally exaggerated the seriousness of the current flu outbreak, forgetting that it is a non-notifiable endemic disease in the UK. Australia had a serious outbreak in 2007, as their horses had never been exposed to the virus. They were what we call a naive population, and therefore the disease affected their health greatly and was highly contagious. They had no option to shut down their racing. In Europe, EI is an endemic disease, which means it's always present in the horse population, just like it is in humans. So why, why is this a different scenario to horses in the normal course of things getting minor flu outbreaks? Okay, so what we need to do, differentiate here is what is equine influenza mm. and what is a respiratory disease in a racing stable? So, you know, a snotty nose, a horse with a cough could be, it's got a bacterial infection, it might have a rhinopneumonitis, it could have a herpes, it could have an upper airway allergy disease, okay? Scoped, dirty, treated, that's fine. So they are infectious, but separating that from there is equine influenza is a very infectious disease. It's got a short incubation period, so we're talking about 24 to 48 hours. It moves very, very quickly. The industry goes to a lot of trouble to vaccinate and check the vaccination mm -hmm. status of nearly all its racing horses. That's what we do. We try and uh, ex um, eliminate other horses from coming in contact. We go to a lot of trouble to say we've got a racing population that realistically does not have equine influenza. You have to remember that there are no carriers in this disease. If you're clinically affected and you are now shedding virus, you're an infected horse. Once you've recovered, you're not. So in a racing stable, there shouldn't be this ongoing ticking of equine influenza occurring unless you are reintroducing horses into your stable from an outside source that are therefore infected at the time you're bringing them in. So the, and normal training stables who have got good biosecurity would take those new introductions, keep them separated for 14 days, assess that they're not a danger, they're stable, and bring them in. So, you know, I question the difference between a snotty nose or a dirty scope mm. and a horse with equine influenza. I think they're two distinct things. The other thing to probably describe here is it looks that this virus we've got, which is from the American clade one... Yeah, Florida it, clade, isn't it? Yeah, is quite virulent. It's nasty which means that we are seeing, I'll backtrack and say to you, we saw cases or cases were reported in Belgium and France back in October, November last year in non-thoroughbred recreational horses, and we've seen those outbreaks sort of continue around, but in non-thoroughbreds. They were initially in non-vaccinated horses, mm -hmm. and then suddenly we started to see it in some vaccinated horses, which tells us that it's being able to overcome the immunity of the vaccine. And that might occur because, you know, the vaccine might be 12 months ago, it's running out of immunity. Yeah. Or you've got a young group of horses, two-year-olds, who've had initial vaccination scheduling, are due for their third vaccination, and are, their teeters are at the low level, can be exposed to this virus, therefore they clinically show symptoms and they become shedders and then they become shedders and challenge okay. any other horse. So, so on, one, on one hand you're suggesting that this is a more virulent strain, therefore we need to be more vigilant, yes? Yes. yes. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. Uh, welcome back, you're watching Luck on Sunday. David Sykes has gone back to convene a a meeting with his uh, BHA representatives about what to do next. I think what we learnt from David Sykes were, were a few things. First of all, we've now got up to about 1,500 negatives since the Donald McCain containment. 
that not every horse in every yard is necessarily being tested if trainers are operating their own biosecurity measures, that more swabs are being brought in to try and speed up the process, that yards still haven't been fully tested, therefore we could be waiting quite a long time until the go-ahead is given. But the go-ahead might be given to race in a certain circumstance if the BHA are satisfied they've contained certain pockets and therefore some trainers might not still be able to run uh, their horse. I think those were the, the key points out of the interview with David Sykes as I'm joined by a Triple Gold Cup winning trainer Henriette and I and, and Ian Bartlett. Um, welcome on what's been a, a pretty extraordinary week for the sport, Hen. It certainly has been, and it's, it's not going to stop in a hurry. They've lit a fire and they're going to have a job to put it out. Uh, what was your main takeaway from what, what David Sykes was, was saying there? Well, I think it's interesting that the, the testing in the yards is, is pretty random, and the fact that they're only doing certain yards now because of the lack of swabs, and also that they haven't tested every horse in every yard. It's, it's, not, it's not consistent. And, and, and he said it's a very um, virulent strain of this virus and that it spreads very easily. Well, if it's so powerful, this virus, there's a lot of human people that have been connected with these horses and there's a lot of spread of, mm. of, of, of people from different yards, I mean, even from farriers and vets. Why can they not carry... It with them as well. And I think David, to be fair to him, was, was recognising that, wasn't he? Mm. He recognised the, the element of, of human transmission of contagion. So is the issue that the testing is not being done thoroughly enough, or is it more fundamental that you don't think they should have started a testing process like this in the first place? No, I think it's ridiculous that they started it in the first place. Um, I think they've overreacted, and I think that they don't realise how, how it's damaging it is to the whole industry. Um, by stopping racing with only a sort of minor, minor number of horses affected at the moment. And I spoke to Donald McCain yesterday. I mean, he said these horses that are supposedly positive are very well. They had no nasal discharge. One of them bucked its lad off. They have, they've never had any temperatures. They're not sick animals. But evidently the first three must have been sick, otherwise he wouldn't have asked for them to be swabbed and tested himself because he was the one that asked for the first three to be tested. That I didn't ask him, but um, well, they, they possibly were a bit, a bit off colour. But they're not, he said if people walked into his yard and they were asked to identify the six horses which had got the, the flu virus, they wouldn't be able to identify them because they all look the same. Barty, if you were the regulator and you were presented with this case, how would you play it? Well, I, I, the question you asked him about whether they were following a protocol, I think, is an interesting one. I didn't quite uh, get the, the answer he gave, because if, there, if in the BHA vault there is, this is what you do to run racing, and there is a thing that says, equine flu, you get two or three more that have been vaccinated but have tested positive for it, and one of them has been to a race course, what you do is stop racing for the next 24 hours and gather your thoughts and see what you're doing. That's all well, and that's fine. Because, you know, if there's a protocol there, some people have sat down in the past, mm. thought about it, this is what you do, then that's all well and good, and you continue that way. The question is, 
is there? Mm. Did well, he say there is? Or? No, he didn't say right. there is. I asked him if there was a protocol, and he said, essentially, I think what I inferred from his answer was that he was saying that it was ba- experience-based, experience-led from his time in Dubai and his time in Australia, and in consultation with lots of other bodies, veterinary advisors, who have, uh, who have all agreed that this is the right thing to do. And I think we should stress that this has the support of the veterinary advisors of the Racecourse Association, of the ROA, of the Jockey Club, and all manner of other industry bodies. So, you know, hen, there is, there is industry veterinary support for the for the way that this has been carried out by the BHA, though that support is not necessarily shared by the wider veterinary community, is it? I've spoken to quite a number of vets over the last couple of days, both in Ireland and and in England and in Australia, and they are not supporting what's being done. I mean, they think it's it's crazy. Let's uh, let's talk to Lynn Hillier, who has had significant experience at the British Horse Racing Authority and is now the Chief Veterinary Officer and head of, head of anti-doping at, at the Turf Club in Ireland. Lynn, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very well, thank you. And I'm sure you've heard what uh, David Sykes has had to say and, and also to, to Henrietta's view that this is a, an overreaction and a, and a mismanagement of the situation. Um, where do you stand on this? Well, I think the first thing to say is this is a very difficult, very rapidly evolving situation. And just listening to the, the points made just now, whilst it's nice to have a blueprint and it's nice to work from a blueprint, they, they never quite work in real life sometimes. So I think what the BHA are doing, um, as they've said very, very, you know, several times, is gathering facts as quickly as they possibly can to inform their decisions. Um, they had to take decisive action. This, this disease, as we've said a hundred times, is, is highly contagious. Yes, it, it, it can have mild clinical signs. It, it can um, sort itself out very quietly and it circulates all the time. It's endemic. But this strain, for whatever reason, appears to be behaving differently. And, and then again, as you've just said, there's a, 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 um, a significant bulk of veterinary advice that's going into the decisions that are being made. Um, and, and I think that's very important. I, I asked David the question. I'm sure you, you heard me uh, ask him. There was a, a positive test on a vaccinated horse in Ireland, a thoroughbred, on the 17th of January, after which the BHA sent out uh, um, an alert to all trainers in the UK to enhance their biosecurity models. Why, why are you still racing in Ireland and we're in lockdown here with a situation that is, is proving essentially calamitous for the industry in terms of the money that we're losing on a day-to-day basis? Okay, like, um, I'll deal with the, the Irish part of it. Why are we still racing in Ireland? We're racing in Ireland because our risk assessment at the moment is that it's safe to do so. We, as you probably know, I'm sure you know, um, updated our advice on Friday night yeah. with increased measures, most particularly that there should be urgent and necessary vaccination in the face of this infection. That, that, that was based on developments through Friday. So we are, we are developing our policy. We're, we're moving at the moment because the disease itself is moving. I think it's really important to say, and it's been said already, but I'm going to reiterate it, this is not a disease of thoroughbreds, it's a disease of all horses. Mm. It is circulating, and so it's in our hunters, it's in our show jumpers, it's in our, our equestrian, it's all over the place. And what we need to do, certainly in, in, from the Irish racing point of view, the HRI and IHRB, the decisions that were made on Friday were in the interest of protecting our racehorses. So we, we are watching, obviously, I'm in close con- con- contact with David on, on, a, on a daily, regular basis, the next point for them will be tomorrow when they've had the chance to gather their results in or probably later on tonight. 
um, and we'll go from there. I think it's important to to stress that, as, again, as has been said, we're dealing with a base level of protection against flu. Our horses are, have mandatory vaccination all the time. But the reason that we've required the extra vaccination now is because of the difference in the way that this particular strain is behaving. How much do you think this is going to impact on on the breeding industry and the breeding season? I'm thinking particularly about the movement of horses between England and Ireland, most particularly. It's one thing to say that British horses can't go and race in Ireland, but in, in all honesty, that is secondary to the implications now we're coming into, into covering season. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. Now, that is very much a matter for the Irish Southern Breeders Association and Pope Breeders Association. We obviously don't, don't regulate breeding. But I think the, the movement of horses depends on trying to deal with the disease. We're all trying to deal with the disease. Um, in, in terms of the movement of racehorses, as you say, at the moment there is a restriction. We're hoping to, to, to change that. We would want to change that as quickly as possible in reflection of the, we're hoping, the reduced risk as it unfolds. But we don't know that yet. It's Sunday morning. We, we should be in a better position by this evening, stroke into Monday. Yeah, what would you need to see to release that restriction? So what we would need to see would be a, a movement of direction, basically. It felt on Friday, or certainly the evidence would have suggested on Friday, that matters were, were not moving in a positive direction. Um, they are increasingly moving in a positive direction over the weekend with the release of the further negative tests. So that's, again, going back to what I said at the, at the head, it, it, this has to be, any decisions are based on evidence. David and his veterinary committee are making recommendations to the, to the board with, with, with that evidence, and so we need to see that evidence as well. Uh, I, I, I'd, I challenge David as, as regards the, the contagious nature of this, uh, of this strain. Um, he, he said, and I think you agree with him, that one of the reasons why the lockdown was necessary was because of how contagious this, this is thought to be. I said, how come then there have been so many horses returned negative, even though a significant portion of them will have come into some contact with a horse who has proven to test positive? So just as in, as, as in people, horses have varying immunity. It'll depend what vaccination they've had and when they've had it as to how susceptible they are to, to con contract the infection itself. We, you know, this is, this is the reason why we are focusing on the vaccination side here, because we have a, a very different horse population in terms of, um, you know, the size of it, the island, the, the prevalence of the disease in non-thoroughbreds. It, 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 this is a disease which, if you have a horse in a ditch on one side of the field, the horse on the other side of the field can, can then obviously catch it. It's, it's a question of managing the type of disease we have. Um, in your experience, if you had still been in a, in a senior role at the BHA, do you think you would have taken exactly the same measures that the BHA have taken? <laughs> I think, I, think I, I, I hope and I, I trust they would be acting on facts. Um, and certainly with the support and guidance of the veterinary committee. So if I was presented with the fact that David's been presented with, I'm, I'm sure that would be the case. Um, you know, he's, he is acting with, as I say, a battery of veterinary opinion, expert opinion, the Animal Health Trust behind him. Um, he is an extremely expert veterinarian in his own right. As you say, he's been through various um, scenarios of equine disease. You know, he knows his stuff. Um, I'm not saying that I would behave differently or the same. I've had the same facts in front of me. I think I'd be behaving in a similar way. Are you surprised that this has not received the widespread support of, of senior vets within the sport, i.e. people, the clinicians who regularly deal with racehorses in major training centres are not four square behind the lockdown? Does that surprise you? I think the important bit is that the veterinarians who are representing the industry bodies on the veterinary committee 
are, are those who have been charged with the responsibility of helping the BHA make these decisions. Um, and, and that's the group of vets who, who are advising. Um, you put a group of vets in a room, um, in any room, uh, there will always be differences of opinion, different experiences, different, different points of view. The important bit is that they agree on the science of it. And I think that's the bit that, to be honest, the BHA are working very, very fast in the face of a rapidly developing situation. I would suggest that none of us have all the facts in the way that David and his committee do. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Well, my next guest is widely renowned as one of the most successful gamblers, successful punters on the sport of thoroughbred horse racing in the world. In 2009, he published a book called Enemy Number no. One, in which he chronicled how he made his way to £10 million over an eight-year period. He also chronicled some extremely dark and difficult periods in his life, which saw him blackmailed and threatened uh, by some pretty unsavoury characters. He emerged from that. The book was a, ra uh, a raging success, subsequent to which we've not seen much of him because he's gone back uh, to punting and punting very successfully. Uh, the last year, however, has been one of significant trial, quite literally, and real tribulation from which he has now emerged. I'm very happy to say my next guest here on Luck on Sunday is Patrick Veach. Patrick, good morning and thank you for joining me. Morning. I say it's been a, a very difficult year. That, that is a, an understatement for you. Just, just talk us through exactly w what happened to you. Yeah, well, it was two years in total that... Uh it was back in August 2016, and I was uh, driving, and another driver, uh, driving a truck with a trailer, chose to reverse on the f in the fast lane of a dual carriageway on a bend. That led to an accident, and I came round the corner and there was another accident, and tragically that led to a young boy dying. And that's obviously been sort of unimaginably painful in itself. Um, but it took two years um, to resolve, and at the end of two years, <clears throat> five experts had all independently um, formed their conclusions and signed a report that the, the accident was inevitable and unavoidable. Um, but unfortunately, it took two years to go there, so whilst trying to deal with the trauma of the accident mm. and the, you know, the horrors of what I saw that day, that was sort of loaded on top. Um, so that essentially the, the Crown Prosecution Service advised the police they could bring a, get a case against you for causing death to a child by dangerous driving. Yeah, so there was a, one investigator who subsequently was one of, one of the five and initially produced a report um, with, a, with a different view. But subsequently, um, fair play to him, owned up to um, two massive mistakes in that report, um, one of which, and, you know, is this... I, I do believe it's what happened, um, but um, he measured the available distance for me to see, um, wrote it down, and then when he transferred to his notes for the report, added 100 metres by mistake. And that was just a pure error? A pure error, and that's, that's on his account, and, and that combined with another mistake meant that um, you know, what was concluded by probably the top you know, international expert, uh, that, that my response time had, had been you know, above averagely fast, um, because of those errors, was, was viewed incorrectly. Um, so, uh, yeah, it took two years to resolve. Could you work during that period? Could you, could you do anything? Yeah, I, I, I had to. Um, yeah, I remember my father said sort of 24 hours later, you just need to bury yourself in it because otherwise you'll, you'll go mad. So uh, I had to carry on. And could you carry on effectively, successfully? Um, 
well, I, I didn't lose my focus. Um, I'm, I'm, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm somewhat reluctant talking about levels of success. I, I feel that when I wrote the book, which, by the way, I'm, I'm not recommending buying now. It's many years out of date. Um, back then was a time when I was very pleased with what happened and was probably a little, at the time, too boastful. And so uh, I'm, I'm, these days I tend to be very... Um, cautious about going into those details but but I certainly didn't lose my focus over the period yeah when I when I said in my introduction that the book chronicled that you'd made like 10 million pounds in, in eight years or whatever it said on the inside of the dust cover do, were you cringing slightly inside it's it's something that I would do differently do differently now um, and it shows I suppose the journey of, of, of you know that what happened to me was so devastating in 98 um, that I you know I, I it, for me, it was all about how I came back from that. Yeah, just, just remind anyone who doesn't know what happened to you in, in 19. This is where you were blackmailed and threatened. Yeah, so I was, you know, minding my own business at, um, you know, 8 o'clock on a summer evening, uh, a knock on the door, and um, the person concerned had sent me a business plan uh, through somebody, uh, sort of a, an acquaintance, and, uh, you know, asking me to invest in a scheme that was clearly not credible um, for uh, bars, restaurants, this, that and the other. And um, subsequently he came around as a, with an a, a, a accomplice and uh, said that, uh, you know, because I hadn't given him the business plan back, which he hadn't asked for, and it was about four pages long, um, he'd lost a big deal and, and threatened me that I had to pay him a you know, large amount of money, otherwise they'd come back the following day. And um, so subsequently I, you know, felt I had to go to the police, stand up to it, and did. Um, but then I had to disappear. And, um, you know, uh, it was a, a long period waiting for that to, to resolve itself. And how did it resolve itself? Well, there was an initial conviction on the case uh, involving me after um, sort of uh, three months. Um, but then the person concerned was eventually uh, six years later, seven years later, convicted of um, attempted murder of a policeman and so was then sent for a long prison sentence. And so that, in a sense, was something of a release, which is why you, you wrote the book. Yes. It was, a, it was very enjoyable, I think, for people, because for all people might have envied the success you had, there was a certain level to which everybody aspired to be a, a good and smart and clinical punter, but also one who could... Uh, use the game and use the system to get a little advantage, to get an edge that other people didn't have. And I think people quite quite warmed to to that for a little while. I think there was a, I've probably got quite a generous press from uh, you know from from some readers who, yeah. so long as you were you know winning money off the bookmakers, then you were you know then then that was fine. I say I would I would do it differently now, but uh, yeah, there's certainly people enjoyed that. I think. So how would you do it now? I suppose I would. Uh, feel I could cover it and lay it on a little less thick. Um, I, uh, yeah, it just, uh, it doesn't read now very modestly. Um, do you think that your experience in the last couple of years has, has, has changed the way you think about life significantly? Um, I suppose it's, it's in some ways made me more cautious and, and that sort of thing. Uh, the, the, perhaps the, the, the view on the book was a developing thing, um, but uh, certainly it's, it's made me, you know, cautious and and you know I, I th there was a period in which until it was resolved I didn't really want to be seen places and that sort of thing you know sort of people could misinterpret me as having a good time if they briefly saw a smile on my face or something like that so it was it's quite even looking for but what I'm trying to say is that have you got a little more perspective are you a little less driven do you have a sort of 
broader yes. view of life. Yes, and I think that was gradually happening anyway. Um, but yeah, that probably may have accelerated it. Yeah. Do you see more daylight than you used to see? Um, I see a lot more. Um, I, I, I aim to get out in the sunshine now. I, I have quite strong views about this now that uh, you know, dermatologists tell us to avoid the sun and this, that and the other. When they go on, it's, it's, uh, the use of statistics in, in life and in health matters is very dubious in places because it's all right saying that people who get some sunshine um, end up with more um, skin cancer, a little, although regular users, not much at all. Um, but what you're interested in is, is overall mortality, mm. and, and the, the figures are showing that those people are hide away from the sun. They may, they may, if you completely hide from the sun, you won't get skin cancer, but you'll probably die of something else sooner. Now, there'll be people watching at home who are sitting there itching, edge of their seat, thinking, just asking how he makes all his money. How does he do it? What's the secret to being a punter? How does he get on? How does he get a bet on? We can't get a bet on. How does Patrick Reed still get a bet on and make any money? Well, that bit's become trickier. There's no doubt, you know, we've had to be um, accepting of how that's changed. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, had to, I've had to just accept changes there and, uh, you know, the amounts are smaller. And hopefully become wiser and be able to find more opportunities. Um, so you have, to, you have to stake smaller? Stake Use smaller. more agents? Uh, agents, you know, perhaps... Less so, just 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 a general flexibility and a willingness to be more against the tide. That if you you know there were horses that you could find ten, fifteen years ago that would have you know um, an enormous chance, but be very obvious. And those you know are either they've collapsed the night before or they're collapsing you know sort of at, uh, at nine forty-five in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, that sort of thing. So it's 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 looking for that horse that other people don't like it, and I think they're wrong. And there the you know the, the amounts of money are generally better, but. In terms of a secret, one of the things there is, is just needing to be very fast, um, just needing to, to cover the ground, you know, that, that people don't cover the ground fast enough. Um, they spend... go, go on, explain that. It's those phone calls and the, uh, the messages and the typing of messages. It's the, you know, did you see that? That was impressive. What was he doing on that? All that type of thing. Uh, and it's uh, fine if it's just social or if you've finished your working day, but the, to have an edge in this tricky time where, where you know, the market's got harder for getting bets on, you really need to cover some ground. And there's one thing I'd say is that, you know, I, I talk about perhaps in a, uh, there's a, a level one decision, which is I think this horse will be really well suited by the distance. But if that's what everybody else thinks, there's no edge there at all. Mm. Level two is finding something that's, that's not appreciated so that, you know, uh, that, you're, that, that you think something's positive and it's underrated. But then to find a really good bet, you need to have two or three of those. You need a multiplicity of edges. Because if you find just one thing, it might be with more work, you'd have found two reasons not to like it. And so it's, you know, if there's one thing I'd say is it's, 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 it's getting the process right, getting faster, getting through the work, and, and getting enough done. How, how do you not get bored with horse racing? Given how much you have to watch in yeah. order now to get an edge, you must have to watch way more horse races now than you did 20 years ago. I'm probably much more willing to be selective, take time away, and that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, um, you know, it, it is a regret to me that they've gone so wild as a fixtures list. And um, so I suppose just being willing to take time away and just be accepting, you know, there's, 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 it's, it's still overall a very enjoyable thing to do. People talk about gambling addiction always in negative sense because people who have a clinical problem with yes. gambling lose an awful lot of money yes. and often their livelihood yes are you a gambling addict no i, I love a day when there's you know, when i mean I, I aim to find things but then on a day when i can't find something i, I love it I, that's you know or, or a day when it's 
all over quickly or and to be honest you know Thursday and Friday Saturday were very handy for catching up with things you know sort of uh, the winters a lot less for me anyway I'm not really into the jumps but um, um, yeah no, I, I have no difficulty uh, in, in taking time away. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Michael Dickinson to come, but a whole range of brilliant guests this morning. I hope you're enjoying the show. Ian Bartlett is back with us. Patrick Veach is still here, and I welcome Susanna Gill. Seven marathons, seven continents, seven days, and you are very much in one piece. What a fantastic achievement. Congratulations. Yeah, I seem to have come out of it feeling pretty well. And I mentioned seven marathons in seven days, seven continents. It's nothing to what you've had to do since you've come back, where you've had to run between virtually every news organisation in the country. It's really captured the imagination. It was, it was kind of mad because we finished at 1am Miami time on Thursday morning, which was, I think, 6am here. So I had about a couple of hours of just actually kind of absorbing it all. And then calls started coming in, and it's just been kind of crazy since. I mean, I was chatting for an hour to Runner's World last night, who want to do a feature on me um, and I just it's completely changed my life in a week look at that there we are runner's world Susanna Gill breaks world record running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents where did the idea first come to you so I've been running for 10 years and I'd always I'd heard about this challenge because Sir Ranulph Fiennes did it in 2003 and as someone with very mild OCD I quite like the, like, the symmetry of seven days seven continents seven marathons so I always thought oh that would be nice Never, ever thought I'd really do it until I came across World Marathon Challenge, which is the company that organises it, last January. And even then, I ummed and ahed for six or seven months thinking about it because the sensible part of my brain was like, just don't do this. I used to be so crippled after one marathon, like, why do I do seven? And then I kind of got organised over the summer. I was running, I joined Alizetti, and I think in a way that might have been part of the reason because we have got such a go-getting team and we're kind of all out there with what we're doing with the tote. And I just thought... If I don't seize the moment and do this now, I'm 34. My legs and body is never going to be in a better shape in, in a few years' time. So I just thought, let's seize the moment and do it. And I signed up and, and started training hard since September. And it just turns out that if you do five months of really, really solid training, you can just get yourself in a shape that you can do something like I've done in the last week. But what impresses me about you is that you're not, you're not so obsessive that you can't do anything else. No. You know, you're not so obsessive that you're boring everybody with it every single well, second of every day of some every of my hour. Colleague, of, some of my they, colleagues could disagree with that in recent weeks. But no, I mean, life's about having fun. I mean, I used to, I remember when I started marathon running, I used to give up alcohol for three weeks before the London Marathon. Mm. And one year I just woke up and thought, why did I do that? It's not making me any faster. A glass of champagne doesn't do you any harm. Several more probably doesn't either. Um, and I just, I enjoy it. It's just... This, this is the secret. <laughs> this, this is the guide. I, I'm waiting to, for my your sponsorship um, but it is it's about enjoying life and you, you you do so much better if you if you really enjoy it and and then you can focus and do an absolutely great job oh, right. when you're competing in a roundabout way i think what you're saying is if your brain is in the right place and you're thinking positively then you can achieve virtually anything that your body will then allow you to do yeah. is that right so yeah. how much of it is physical preparation how much of it is mental preparation I'd say at least a third of it is mental preparation because I think you need three things to be a good marathon runner. You need your, your physical composition, of which mine's rubbish. I've got short legs, a short stride, not great, whereas, you know, you look at someone like Mo Farah, amazing. 
Then you've got all the bits of your body that you can't see, so primarily your heart and lungs. They're your engine, of which I think mine are pretty good. Well, that they must seem, be. That seems to be what keeps me going. But the final absolutely essential component is what's between the ears, because if you're running a marathon, it hurts whatever time you're doing it. And whether you're taking two and a half hours or five and a half hours, it's going to hurt. And, you know, I've had a coach for the last five months and actually got a couple of books here. The first thing he did when I went to say I wanted to do this, would he coach me, was he didn't put me on a treadmill or make me run. He made me read these two books, which is one is Grit by Angela Duckworth, which is all about the kind of myth of talent and the fact that it's hard work. And then this, uh, this one is about the art of mental training and what you do to make yourself mentally strong when you're in those difficult situations. And like, if you read these and you, and you start to understand how your brain works and how you're going to deal with things when it's tough, you then get to those tough situations, which, you know, Marathon 6 and 7 this week were hard. But I felt like I was so ready for it because I knew it was going to be hard. There was no surprise. So I was just able to get through it. The extraordinary thing, I watched the footage of you running through the line each, each race. And... Normally, when you see people finish marathons, even Olympic standard runners, when they finish a marathon, they are bent over double like this. But you were sailing through the finish line, uh, doing this, holding your fingers up to the camera, and then giving an interview straight away without being out <laughs> well, of breath. Sort of... How are you not out of breath? Well, if you watch Paula Radcliffe do a two-hour, 15 marathon, she's travelling a lot quicker than I was. Um, but also, it's again, it's psychological. The marathon for me is about sort of three stages. You have that first seven or eight miles where you get in a nice rhythm. Then you get into this middle bit of the race where you're cruising. And then at some point it starts to hurt. And I always just try and push that point out as far as possible. I mean, this, is, Antar- you, this is Antarctica and you did this in three hours something or other. Three hours 53, although I'm not a natural mover on snow. The girl that beat me was a brilliant trail runner from Denmark. And she just moved beautifully across the snow. And I definitely didn't. Here I'm looking tired, look. Yeah, you nailed this. Look- you won this in 321. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the the toughest race was race five because race one to four I was quite prepared for. Five, six and seven was the step into the unknown. Perth. And um, we, Christina and I, absolutely went out hammer and tongs that race. And I had to put in the biggest race push of my life halfway to beat her. And even then, she came up on my shoulder with 200 metres to go and tried to out-sprint me. And I had to put in a massive sprint and I won by 13 seconds. And I think that sort of was probably the defining moment of the week because if I'd let her win that I think races six and seven would have been an absolute nightmare because she'd have been coming back at me but I won it I won the fourth race in a row and I think that sort of broke her a bit um, but I certainly wasn't expecting to sprint finish the fifth marathon of seven that is quite extraordinary of course you, you won the world record now this is the summit of physical endeavor you simply cannot better this can you no, of course I can. There's the world of running, I could go and do anything. I mean, you've got people that run across America. Um, people run from John O'Groats to Land's End. If Forrest Gump ran across America, but oh. I think he was about the only one. I... No, people have actually, real people have done it. So the, is that so the, the, the organiser of World Marathon Challenge did it. Um, you've, got, you can, you've got certain challenges, 50 state challenge, you run a marathon in every state. In 50 um, days. You've got the North Pole Marathon, although my experience on snow has distinctly put me off that one. Um, so, no, I, I don't know what it is, but there'll, there'll be something else. I know it. Um, Patrick, you must... Uh, we, we were talking a lot about mental strength in the last half an hour. This, yeah. this is something pretty extraordinary. So that level of focus. Yeah, because the, you know, it's one thing to be strong for so many hours a day, but then you can have some time off. But when you're you know, seven and seven, it's, it's just... You know, that's absolutely relentless. I mean, but do you need that? Do you need that structure in your life? Is that yeah? I mean, the thought of not running, I just—it's it's my way of totally relaxing. I go out if, even if it's just an hour around the streets of London, 
leave your phone behind. No one can get hold of me, which is great as a director of comms. Um, but you just have an hour where you just you're, you get some headspace and you come back and you do everything else in life so much better because of that time out. I mean, I'm, I'm evangelical about running, but it just is so good for you. Uh, which, was the, which was the most significant achievement of that group, do you think? That, that fifth one in Madrid. I mean, that's 13 minutes outside my best time. Um, and it was quite funny as well, because my coach texted me after Dubai and said, you know, well done, you're running really well, amazing to be leading at this point, but I'm just a little bit worried that you're running a bit fast. <laughs> so basically, race mm. tactics were just chill out a little bit. So I go and put in my fastest time next next race. And you're raising money as well. Just yeah. tell me a little bit about the, the charitable side of this. Well, people said, oh, who are you going to raise money for? And I thought, well, what is it that, that really gets me? And I, I just love what sports aid do, who, who I've raised money for. They support young athletes. And I'm a fundamentally really fair person, and it seems so unfair to me that you could have two young people who are both talented and determined to fulfil their sporting career, and one might get a chance to do it because they happen to have parents or family that can support them, and one can't. And sports aid step in and fill the gap, you know, when children are 11, sort of 11 to 16, before they get to that stage of, of having any lottery funding if they're good. And they do a great job, so I chose, chose them, and they've been unbelievably supportive. And I've kind of been blown away by how many donations this week, so a massive thank you to everyone. Uh, how many hours was that in total? Uh, about 24 hours running. So 24 hours. In, that, in, in those 24 hours, well, what do you think about? What goes through your head? Do you muse on things to do with work or life or Yeah, anything, you, you start each marathon, you start kind of your brain runs a million miles an hour and you do random, you do think mm. of all the random things that you need to do and try and retain that. And then you go through this joyous stage where you're just, you're just running and you're not really thinking. Um, so you're not dreaming up the latest exact perm or no, trying to work no, out I should, how, I to, should say yes, how to co-mingle pools in Hong Kong or anything like that? No, but you are probably, I do probably clear my brain and think about, yeah, you know, you, you just you come out of it a much clearer person in, in what you're focusing on. Do you think? Do you think you could end up just doing this all the time? No, because I, I enjoy my job so much, and I enjoy the fact that running is my escape. One of my worries with this was so you've got to pay the bills as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, I haven't had so many sponsorship offers yet. Um, but one of my worries with this was that I was going to do so much running, I was going to kill my love of running, but I haven't done. But it will always just be a part of my life. And I, you know, I love working in racing and love working with the Aladetti team at the moment and what we're doing, and those two balance each other really well. Well, it's a bit like your love of betting. We've realised it cannot be killed by conventional weapons, and then nor can, <laughs> and nor can, and nor can Susanna's love of running. That seems fair. There are some things that are just mm. in you somehow, and you can't get out of them. Yeah, and I suppose, as I say, if, you, if you've shown resilience, you probably will be able to carry on. Barty, what do you make of this? Uh, the, the frightening thought, even doing one, more than about five miles would cripple me. Um, of you can tell, of all the four people out here, I'm the least likely to go. No, I'll, put in, a strong, I'll put in a strong bid. <laughs> Actually, the oldest person running this week uh, was called Dan, and he was 76, and he did it. So age is no barrier and absolutely no excuse. I was going being fat rather than age, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I was sort of happy um, with my age. <laughs> I mean, the good thing about what you're doing is that you actually need, like, ha- a million carbohydrates a day. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, ironically, I've never been slimmer, but I just honestly don't stop eating. Here we go, then. <laughs> don't, don't give me the challenge. What's it I to can, me? I can what, see the, that the, off. The, the Susanna Gill pastry challenge. I, mean, I she did, could do got seven tra- marathons on seven continents in seven days, but can <laughs> she eat seven pastries in seven minutes?
Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. I hope you're enjoying Luck on Sunday. I hope you're not too exhausted and you've been enriched by the variety of guests that we've had. I, I don't think I'd be offending anyone by saying we have saved the best until last. He is a man who has achieved extraordinary things in horse racing, both sides of the Atlantic. He had a, a successful riding career until 1980 when he took over his parents' training base, from where he sent out the first five home in the Gold Cup in 1983, dual Gold Cup winning trainer, many other great races as well, including several editions of the King George VI steeplechase. After a brief period training uh, at Manson for Robert Sangster, he relocated to the United States, where he instantly became a grade one winning trainer several times over. His most famous accomplishment in the United States was to get the injured De Hoss back to the track to win a second Breeders' Cup mile two years after his first. Subsequent to which, if that wasn't enough, he decided to climb another mountain, and that was to try and revolutionise the way in which horses are trained and the surface on which they run. He is none other than Michael Dickinson. Michael, good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat. Not at all, and it is great to see you here, and I've thoroughly enjoyed seeing you before the programme with Henrietta Knight and David Sykes, good old friends of yours as well, and just your enthusiasm, your relentless enthusiasm for every aspect of the game is quite infectious. I often ask trainers people and practitioners in the game do you ever get bored you clearly never get bored no no I love horses love racing so yes it's my life it has been your life right from the outset um, when you were riding horses for your for your parents when they were training very successfully it strikes me that there was almost a happy-go-lucky quality to, to, to the game relative y to what it is now yes we hear all the time now about the jockeys at Cheltenham there's so much pressure on them coming to Cheltenham because Cheltenham's so big and powerful now they've got to have a winner and they're under pressure. Well, I was never under that pressure because we were, at the time, just farmers from Yorkshire with its fox hunting and point-to-points. So just to have a runner with a sort of 10 to 1 chance at Cheltenham was fantastic. So when I walked in the racetrack at Cheltenham, I already felt a winner. Mm. I felt no pressure to win. We weren't expected to win at Cheltenham. So I used to just go out and enjoy myself. So that was terrific to be in that position. And do you think that was redolent of the whole atmosphere around national hunt racing then? Was it um, a, a rather more relaxed scene, well, it, do you it, think? It, uh, it, yes, I mean, Cheltenham's got bigger since then, but uh, no, it was always the number one, and we always wanted to do it, so it was, for me, just to have a runner. So I really enjoyed it. And you, you never miss it, do you? You're always back there for Cheltenham every yes, year. Yes, yes, we go, yes. Uh, now I've, uh, I'm a self-appointed ambassador, and I invite people from outside racing and bring them racing. Mm. So two years ago, we bought Carol Borderman and Richard and Mindy Hammond, and now they've bought a horse in training with Tim Bailey. So that's good. This year, we've got quite a few. We've got the, uh, the head of NASA coming. Have you? Yes. And we've got... Uh, how, dare I ask, how do, you, how do you go about becoming friends with the head of NASA? Where did, where did that come from? Uh, well, she's been to stay at the farm. Uh -huh. um, she's the head of the, uh, um, the NASA base near Washington, D.C. Right. So she comes up and we took her fox hunting because she rides horses, she likes horses. She's a big friend of Carol Boardman, so Carol bought her. But she's great. So she's the head of NASA, NASA yes. Washington. Of course, your base is in, in Maryland, so, so not too far away. Uh, just tell me, when, when you transitioned from, from being a rider to training, to taking over the, the training of the horses, was it immediately obvious to you that you could, you could make a breakthrough? You could take a step forward as regards no. conditioning horses? No. Or, not? or no, did, it, no, did it just no. happen? No. Um, my father very kindly retired when he was quite young and gave me the chance. And the first year, we didn't do very well. We messed it up. 
So I sat down with Brian Powell, our head man, who's now at Godolphin, and I said, well, we've got to do better. So we, we started training them differently. So it was Brian and I, perhaps, to, to get them fitter. What happened? I was out for dinner with Michael Stout uh, during the Commonwealth Games when they were breaking all the records. So Stouty said to me, wouldn't that be great to know how they break all these records? Uh. So I said, well, let's do it. So I arranged some meetings with the head coach and the head doctor from the British Olympic team. And also with uh, Stan Long, who was the coach for Brendan Foster. Uh -huh. So we had about 10 lessons together. Stouty came up from Newmarket and we went to visit them all. And that year I won the Cheltenham Gold Cup and Stouty won the derby with Shergar. This was 81. 81, that's when we started, yes. So my first season wasn't very good, and uh, second season was a bit better. And this is because you had engaged people who were experts in athletic performance yes, to come and yes, help you. So yes. what was it that they were telling you to do? Uh, just more, put just uh, more work, yes. Um, I think that we, they did a canter for about five furlongs, and Stan Long came down, he, you know, we invited him down. He said, well, we haven't taken our tracksuits off yet. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought that was quite a quite a, enough training, you know. But you'd been steeped in your family had been steeped in the training of racehorses yes, for, yes. for so many years. You must have thought, oh, we know exactly how to to do this. Well, how frightened were you of pushing these horses further than uh, further than you thought was 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 realistically oh, possible? Well, my dad did. Yeah, I bet. Yes, he came into when we started doing, and uh, if it hadn't been for Brian, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it. But he came into my office, closed the door behind him, stuck behind the door, so I couldn't get out. You've got to stop. This isn't going to work. You've got to stop. So I said, please, Dad, let me go on. And he did. He was great. But uh, not after a, a discussion or two. And the impact was, was pretty extraordinary. What sort of reaction do you think you got from your contemporaries, your peers, other trainers at the time to the success that you were having? You'll have to ask them that. There was a degree of, there was a degree of envy, I would imagine, that well, you'd gone from... So, yes, yep. And but we had some good horses and we had, had some, some good staff. You had some brilliant horses. And we only had 55 stables and we had 17 boys and they'd all ridden winners. So we had a great team. So we had a lot of help. It was well, a lot of things. How, how was that possible then? Because you, you listen to trainers now and they say, I can't get the staff, I can't get the riders to come in and school. The idea of having that many jockeys who'd had a license and ridden winners to yes. ride for you on a daily basis when you only had 55 horses, it sounds like training utopia and you could make a living. Uh, well, we couldn't really make a living. We didn't make any money training. Even that year when we had the first five and we won three races at Cheltenham, we didn't make any money. But we had some good boys, and it was very rewarding to see them. Earnshaw joined me from school, and Bradley just joined me for one year after school. So they both went on to win the Gold Cup. But we had a good team. Who was the best jockey you rode for you? Oh, they're all good. So that's a leading question. That. It's not a leading question. It's no, just a question. All, it's a, it might be a horrible question, but no, it's a, no, they're, they're all good. Yes, had some good boys. Um, when you had the first five home in the in the Gold Cup, it must have been a an extraordinary but bizarre day for you to experience. Yes, it wasn't. I wasn't happy. Um, I'd been under a lot of pressure for a long time. At Christmas, they were all in really good shape. All the horses, everything. We had twelve winners on Boxing Day. We only had 20 runners, mm. and they were all in the first three bar one. Mm -hmm. So everything was going well. And then the next day, we had four runners, and they all ran terrible. So we went down. So from uh, January and February, nothing went right. And I said to Brian in the middle of February, I said, 
Brian has said, last year we were first and second in the Gold Cup, and this year we're not going to have a runner. That was how it was in February. You know, we just managed to get them all right in the time. It wasn't enjoyable for me because Silverbuck and Wayward Lad were the two best horses there, but they weren't at their best. So I hated doing that, running them, when I knew they weren't at their best. Um, I'm not proud of that now. But um, so if you, you know, had if you had your time again, you wouldn't wouldn't have run them. No, I probably would have done, but you, d you don't like doing it. You know, when you know they're not at the best, but Wayward Lad ran. They were sound and they were healthy. But Wayward Lad was third and Silver was fourth, so they can't have been that bad. But it was a worry to me. Was Wayward Lad the most talented horse you trained? No, Bad's a boy. By a long way. Three Queen Mother Champion chases. Yes, but his first year he won by 35 lengths. The horses that won 102 races um, to beat two previous winners of the race. And was he a horse that when you when you worked him when you did anything with him at home was far in advance of all the other talented horses in your string was he the clear star the clear standard no 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 not no not not really this is him winning his third his queen third. mother championship yes. well, in 1984 he was i think my mother trained him this year didn't she it's probably my mother what was it that set him apart michael oh he had a lot of speed and he was very fast over his fences. Robert Earnshaw was as good a rider as has ever been over a fence. He's not the best jockey in the world, but he was brilliant. He used to go in lengths in the air. So he was... And he was the best horse you trained? Yes, definitely, yes. Uh, do you think How often do you win a championship race by 35 lengths? Do you think he's the best two-miler there's ever been? Because there was the pole in the race yes, in first no, the week. Yes, no, Bolt was the best. He was yeah. the second best. Now, I know... Um, what's the horse that won the, race, that won the competition? Uh, did Sprinter Sacra come yes, out Sprinter one Sacra, in the end? Yes, Well, he was a very good horse, but he only won two champion two-mile chases. He only won by 19 lengths. Why? It, a, he won because it was recent and because it was very emotional. Because mm. for two years, one year he didn't show up, mm. and the other year he was fourth. So it was a brilliant training job by Nicky. So it was more the emotion because there's a guy who lost his crown and won it back again. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, you know... In no, I think that the time he won his first champion chase, he was up there. Yes, he was with, up there, yes. With, with Badsworth Boy and Flying Bolt, but, but perhaps I mean, not the same you know, thing. two years he was missing in action. Now, I know that uh, you are much prouder of other achievements than, than the first five home in the Gold Cup. Why, why does De Hoss winning his second Breeders' Cup mile mean so much more to you than everything you achieved <coughs> under National Hunt? Because uh, we were certain he was going to win before the race. Um, had a really good team, Miguel Piedra and Joan Wakefield and John Boy Faraday. John Boy used to ride his work, get his work within a fifth of a second in a minute's work. He was very good. But we knew we had him spot on. And I went to see Johnny Velasquez in the morning of the race and I said, I know you've got six rides today, but you're going to have one winner. And I was almost crying because you know, we just knew he was so well. So we trained him really well, unlike the Gold Cup, when I only trained three out of the five very well. So he'd had, he'd had a very unorthodox preparation, even by European standards, but particularly by American standards, where they are really not used to a massive layoff and then one prep run and then bang. Yes, but they don't have to race. Peter Farm to train on. Indeed not. If you show them the pictures of Peter Farm, it's just way above the facilities on an American dirt track. It's very hard to train a turf horse on an American dirt track. How could you be so confident that he was going to win? Oh, because he worked really well. We did interval training with him. He was spot on. 
and I had the three people who trained him really, it was Miguel, who was his groom, mm -hmm. who, no. six weeks before, well, first of all, he'd won the Breeders' Cup, then we were training him in South Carolina, mm -hmm. and he bowed attendance. So he was off for a year, so we brought him back, and in June, and they uh, called up the owners, and I said, I'm sorry, I need more time with him. Well, he'd already had 18 months, and the owners were great. I said, I need more time. Just give me more time. I'll give him one race before the Breeders' Cup, and we'll win the Breeders' Cup. So they weren't too pleased, <laughs> having not seen him for 18 months. I bet. Yes. So you were piling a fair bit of pressure on yourself, yes, adopting that campaign. Well, I was confident. Yeah. So, and then, six weeks before, two vets came and said, He's not going to make the first race, let alone the second. You should retire him. Mm -hmm. And 99 times out of 100, they would have been right. But Miguel, who looked after him, came to me and said, don't worry, we'll get him there. And he had the magic hands, and he, he, he worked really hard on him. He used to stand him in ice twice a day, but he did all sorts of other things. And John Boy rode him well. He always knew when he was right. John Boy says they're right, they're right. And Joan trained him as much as I did. And we were very confident. He was fit, he was sound, and he'd been better than he was the year before. So Gary Stevens got off him. So we saw Gary Stevens three days before, and all my staff went up to Gary. You made a big mistake, Gary. You got off. So, because um, I booked Gary on January the 1st, February the 1st, March the 1st, the 1st of every month, I call him up. You will ride the horse in the Breeders' Cup at the end of the year, yeah, just to his agent. So I call up in October, said, Ron Anderson, his agent, mm -hmm. said, uh, you will ride my horse. No, we're not riding you. I said, well, I booked you. We're not riding you. We're riding Among Men for Michael Stout. Yeah. I said, Among Men? <laughs> You're not joking. <laughs> among Men? So I'll bet you $1,000 now. Um, wherever they finish, first and second or next to last, last and next to last, we'll finish in front of um, Among Men. So he took me on. But that was easy money. That was easy money. Now, before you went out in, that day in 98 to win the yes. second of your two Breeders' Cup miles, you had some worries about the turf course, didn't you? And it was, that, was that the day you, you famously wore a... Well, you can tell the story. No, that was at Woodbine. Actually. Woodbine. This was yes. 96 when he won yes, the first Woodbine. time. Right, so Joan went up early with the horse. And every night she phoned me, it's raining. It's mm -hmm. raining. I said, I don't want to hear that. Because he wanted so, fast ground. He wanted fast ground, yes. So anyhow, a, um, so I got there on the Wednesday. I said, well, let's walk the course. So I was with a pentrometer. John Boy had a stick, and Joan was there. And we thought there was a, a dry patch. I said, well, we've got Gary Stevens riding for us. And he's, you know, won the Kentucky Derby three times, and I'm a farmer from Maryland, so why is he going to take any notice of us? So if we tell him something, we better make damn sure that it's right. Mm. So going back, I was dating a model when I was riding, and she came to Chepstow, but she had a cocktail dress and high heels on, which is not where you go to Chepstow in March. Anyhow, so bless her, she walked round with me with high heels, mm -hmm. and I said, I'm going to come up the left-hand side. Oh, she said, no, go up the right, my heels something a lot less. So then I knew by accident the best way to test a racetrack is with a lady with high heels. So... Fast forward 20 years later, Joan's there, and I said, Joan, go and get some high heels. So she goes to the local shoe barn or whatever it was and gets some fairly cheap high bright red high heels. So she walked around with us. Anyhow, we found a, um, a dry, two dry patches. Patch. 
on there, but we walked around three times, so it was nine laps between us. So we found the dryer patch, so we went to Gary, I said, now this is, you know, if you do this, you will not win. But if you do this, you might win. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.